Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, this podcast is called Fraudology. Payment and account fraud is really only one piece of the greater trust and safety organization for a lot of online companies. And payment and account fraud is so important. Obviously, it's been really what I've spent the majority of my career in. But there's a larger organization for a lot of online companies that's referred to as trust and safety. And, you know, depending on their business model, trust and safety is going to have all different types of roles and responsibilities. But Often the role of fraud prevention and account security and all of that it falls under the umbrella of trust and safety because the true purpose of trust and safety came out of companies that were newer 10 to 15 years ago with online only business models that you know often a lot of consumers wouldn't trust right away. And they learned pretty quickly that they needed to focus on the safety of their users or they'd lose their trust. And when you lose users' trust, you lose their money and their attention and all of that. So obviously trust is critical and it's paramount for any business model. So as I said, it, you know, that payment and account fraud is considered a part of the bigger purpose to keep customers safe and retain their trust. So there are also just significant parallels between fraud and trust and safety and AML. Like I, I've had different people on the podcast over time from all of those different types of departments, because I think oftentimes within large organizations or just even in our own heads, we build silos around fraud, trust and safety, anti-money laundering. But really, they all are very connected. And there's a lot of parallels in the methodology and the way that things are done. There's also transferable skill from one of these to the other. And I think the first way you learn about that is through learning from somebody who's in a role like that. So that's why this podcast exists is for the cross-pollination of information across our greater industry, whether that's for people that work for different types of companies like banks and financial institutions, fintechs, marketplaces, standard e-commerce companies, government etc. Or you work in different department names. There's just so much intersection. I think it's important to cross-pollinate that information across all of it. If you're a side note, because I could talk about trust and safety and all the different types of things that are roles and duties that can go into a trust and safety organization, depending on a company's business model. If you're interested in hearing more about the history of trust and safety, I got to interview the founder of the first trust and safety department that I know of which started in 2003 for eBay. And that was Laura Mather. And she is so brilliant. She's really become a leader in the Silicon Valley tech, fraud tech industry, especially. And I recommend you listen to that episode, which was 181 that was released on March 28th of this year. But honestly, probably one of the biggest issues for trust and safety organizations to tackle, or really just that often come up in the news, really the 
effects of it is content moderation or really the content integrity department or a company's content integrity mission or what their strategies are. And that's for any company that has real-time user-generated content. So often people will think of just social media platforms, which obviously they're included and not just social media, but, you know, companies that allow you to upload videos right away or anything else that a user can really upload to the world in a matter of seconds. There needs to be a level of content integrity. And I think that Elon Musk has demonstrated over the last several months what can happen if you don't have that. And, you know, what can happen if a company who has spent you know, the last 10, 15 years developing a foundation of processes and systems and, you know, they weren't perfect, but something and how quickly all of that can just be erased if you take that away. It, content integrity is complex, but not impossible. And I think you'll find in this episode that there are a lot of similar methodologies and philosophies and tactics in identifying and preventing content issues, you know, whether it's misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, threats of violence or terror, child safety, or so many other things that can impact the real world. It's a serious job and it can be challenging, but rewarding too. So like I said, it's not just in social media companies. In addition to that, it's also any platform that allows like seller listings on marketplaces, customer reviews for products, comments on articles or products or other types of things needs a content integrity department. If you honestly, if you don't, then your customer service is often overloaded. And you don't when you don't have processes in place, then everything is a fire drill every day and you're triaging and you're having to come up with policies and processes on the fly, which we all know is just a you're at a risk for just absolute chaos and that will 100% reduce your consumer's trust or your user's trust. So one of, there's been several topics within trust and safety that I want to cover further on the podcast. But like I said, one big one is content integrity. And I have a pretty awesome guest today. And I have a feeling that you won't, you'll rarely get a chance to hear this kind of exceptional conversation that I had with someone who knows just the behind the scenes reality and considerations that have to be made daily to toe the line between keeping users safe while not inhibiting business or being seen as silencing opinions over facts and all of that. So this conversation is important for everyone to hear, whether you're solely focused on payment or account fraud and you're curious about this side of threat mitigation, or if you work in content integrity now, there's always something you can learn from your peers. Or even if you or your children are on social media regularly or you rely on customer reviews for things, stay tuned. So my guest today is Asaf Kipnis. And over the last eight years, Asaf has been in this world of content integrity for two of the largest social media companies in the world, LinkedIn and then at Meta. And Meta is kind of the overall parent company for Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. And while he began as a threat intelligence investigator because of his on-the-job training and his degree and experience in computer science and cybersecurity, he moved his way up to be a people manager of the engineering team for integrity investigations for Meta. Now, most of the people in trust and safety and fraud for the big five or even the big 10 tech companies aren't typically given permission to speak at industry conferences, let alone a public podcast. Trust me, I've asked, but I also understand it. So I usually <laughs> leave them alone for the most part. But unfortunately for us off and 
but kind of fortunately for fraudology listeners, if I'm looking at the silver lining, he was a part of the most recent round of layoffs at Meta a few weeks ago. I haven't really touched on the latest layoffs in tech as much as we did in episodes of Fraudology in August and September, but I know that the most recent rounds, especially in the U.S., have been especially surprising and devastating to those who were impacted because they're, these redundancies or reductions in force aren't really, most of them are no longer based on performance. They've already done those rounds. So now it's solely a math equation. And this makes everyone, including those who haven't been laid off yet, feel a lot more vulnerable than ever. And I know from talking to a lot of you, you're in this boat. So while I did see this conversation that I'm about to have with Asaf, I promise I will stop talking in a minute. As a while I saw it as a benefit to fraudology listeners, I also hope it can bring some awareness to those of you who may be in search of an exceptional and passionate trust and safety professional who has deep experience working for two of the biggest and often targeted first by threat actors, platforms, or companies in the world. I hope that you'll reach out to us off to discuss new opportunities. And as you'll hear in this episode and in our follow-up conversation on Thursday, a lot of what he has experience doing can transfer to a lot, if not all, other areas of trust and safety. And honestly, with how big the external threats to online companies are, we need as many of these highly skilled good guys back on the front lines as possible. In addition to learning about Asaf, I have been in talks with a couple of other people who I've known for several years who just couldn't talk publicly when they were employed. Now that they're laid off, they're seeing that as an opportunity to kind of take a time out and share some of what they've learned with others in their industry and what better way than the largest podcast on our in our industry, which I am humbled to say every time I say it. But also, I have a LinkedIn group that I started a couple of years ago for job postings for fraud and trust and safety and payments as well online. And I will try to remember to put a link to that group in the show notes. You do have to apply to be a member. And it is really only open to practitioners as we have unfortunately seen this as an opportunity for salespeople to look and see what companies are hiring and instead trying to sell their products to negate adding headcount. So it's like everything, right, guys? Gosh, it's kind of like I have to be trust and safety within this group. But if you are a practitioner within fraud, trust and safety, and I'm money laundering, any of those things, you will be accepted in the group. And if you're hiring for any of those positions, please let me know. Please post, send them in my LinkedIn or send them to info at chargelinuxconsulting.com and just put job posting in the subject and we'll make sure that it gets in that group. That is one small way that myself and my assistant can help this industry. And it's led to some pretty awesome and exciting success stories. So I'm happy to help there. But moving into this specific conversation, today Asaf and I talked about why integrity departments within trust and safety organizations are critical, especially for social media companies and any other company that allows real-time user-generated content on their platform, as I mentioned. We also talked about how learning about a threat actor's TTP, their threats, tactics, and procedures, is important to identify ways to scale the detection of the behavior and not just by identifying single accounts at a time, but being able to detect that behavior with things like machine learning and other types of tools. And then he also talked about the difference between mitigating harm 
and perpetuating harm or perpetrating harm, which I found really interesting. It's always interesting to me to talk to people who are just in a little bit different area than I've been because they might use different terms or different ways of saying things, but it's something you know, that other areas talk about. But I always learn something because they are looking at it from a different perspective. And in this case, when he says mitigating harm, he's talking about detecting and stopping the true bad actors. But then he also talked about we really have to be conscious of perpetrating harm too, like false positives or accusing users of bad intent when they certainly didn't mean to, right? I was just, I was talking to a leader a couple of days ago about how they've had to be very specific with their content integrity department, right? It's not that they don't allow any swearing. It's that, you know, saying, oh, F, yeah, that's awesome. And oh, F, you, you did something wrong are two totally different things, right? There's so many other examples of that, but that's just one of them where context is just critically important. And if you're in any part of this industry, you know that more than ever. And that's why humans will always be needed. Humans, at least that are trained to really understand and look at context in addition to the data. Just one more note. Saf will be referencing and sharing his own experiences and observations in this space. He's not here to represent or speak for any of his former employers. And additionally, Anyone of you who has worked for one of the largest tech companies in the world already knows this, but unless you're you are a high level executive within one of those companies, you wouldn't be in a position to answer for or even address any specific issues or business decisions that any of your former employers have made. So I didn't expect us off to do this either. And this is really just meant as a conversation between two industry peers who are both passionate about keeping users and customers safe and earning and sometimes rebuilding their users' trust, all by detecting and disabling bad actors from using the platform for their own nefarious purposes and gain. And if you find this conversation fascinating, and I know you will, I encourage you to reach out to us off at the very least connect with him on LinkedIn. He's been sharing some great thoughts and perspective on trust and safety disinformation and content integrity over the last few weeks. And I've certainly enjoyed his thoughts and perspectives. But also if you listen to him and his to his passion and his expertise and you think he might be a great fit for your company, reach out to him, please. I love helping others in the space. And as I said, <laughs> we cannot afford on this side to lose any good guy on the front lines for long. So now I'm going to stop talking so you can listen to the first part of this enlightening conversation with Asaf Kipnis about the realities and nuances of being a part of a massive content integrity team, as well as some of the experiences he's had. And he'll be back on Thursday's episode where we'll conclude this conversation by diving deep into two of the types of threats that Asaf and his team had to learn about during his career. One will be international misinformation campaigns, and the other will be financial scams targeting consumers. And both of these will be from the perspective of the platforms where most bad actors recruit or identify their victims. So it's going to be really fascinating for us to dive into the details of that from that perspective. For anyone who also works for a company that is a part of what I yell at Bigger Levin of the Scam Rangers podcast shared on Fraudology a couple of months ago. But first, here is the first part of my conversation with Asaf Kipnis, former engineering manager of the Content Integrity Investigations Department at Meta. I 
I am here with Asaf Kipnis. And up until just a couple of weeks ago, Asaf was the security engineering manager for integrity investigations at Meta, which a long title that will have him share what that means and what he was working on. But really, he has been on the front lines of trust and safety in social media, which poses so many unique challenges that I think that a lot of different companies in a lot of different areas can learn from. Asaf, welcome to Fraudology and thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. With so many connections within the trust and safety and the fraud world and the cyber world, we connected over LinkedIn. I really, I always appreciate when people share thoughtful and intriguing posts and thoughts about things that are connected to our industry. And so I think that's what first caught my attention. And then you announced that you were unexpectedly in going through the Kind of the most of the things that a lot of people have had to go through in the last year, as far as just one day the plug is pulled from your job and figure out what's next. And I thought it's a good opportunity for me to get him on the podcast. No, it's not. It wasn't just like that. But I do think it's a good opportunity to be able to reflect on your experiences and your expertise and get to share them with other people in the industry when you know, you're able to a little bit of the lull. So I appreciate that. Sure. So I guess we'll just dive in a little bit. I have not had as many guests in the trust and safety sector as I wanted to, but I definitely have a list going of people that I want to. And because I firmly believe that trust and safety and fraud and all of it are so connected and knowing that in small companies, a lot of people that have a title of a fraud manager are still doing a lot of the things that trust and safety teams do for bigger companies. With all that though, first, I'd love to just hear how your career path led you to being in engineering and trust and safety and threat and tell. Yeah, sure. So my career is a little weird. It is for everyone, right? None of us will grew up saying we're going to be in this industry. So I, it's actually my favorite question to ask people because some people come from an acting background. Some people, we've got one person from an from the NFL that's now in front just crazy things. It's, I actually think it's great because we all come from different perspectives. Yeah. I was in Israel in the military. I was an artillery officer and I was most of my job as an officer. Most of my roles were in border defense uh, in the north border of Israel, north and north east. And then wound up in the United States and I wanted to go to school. And I remember I started a community college and computer science. Can't really tell you why. Never was a computer person. Had a dial-up at one point. And then I remember when I wanted to transfer to a four-year college, they were telling me about the cybersecurity degree, which was a new thing. The cybersecurity, <laughs> I went to Stevens Institute of Technology. The cybersecurity degree there was basically a, a computer science degree with a bunch of security add-ons like crypto and networking and stuff like that. So I immediately thought, because I wasn't sure I was very strongly connected to writing code that it's still not. And I was like, well, what would I want it to do? And then when I thought about security, I remember when I was talking to the person at Stevens and I clicked and then I did my degree and that's how I got into information security and information security. Then I started working. I was very lucky to get a job at VMware in their security operations center. Mm. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was working a swing shift. I had a newborn. I was working from 
four to midnight, oh, four days brutal. a week. It was very interesting, but I learned so much at that job. I'm oh, still thankful for the person that took a chance on me there because he totally did. And there I learned how excited I got about chasing the signal in the noise. Mm-hmm. I remember clearly looking for some kind of signal that was happening and Splunk. And I remember fighting it. Like, yes, got you. So I really enjoyed doing that. And then I progressed from there because I couldn't do swing shift anymore to someone else that took a chance on me as a security engineer at Workday. And then I knew that security wasn't my cup of tea. I definitely didn't like offensive security. I liked defensive a lot more. I couldn't find my niche. And then I, so it was really interesting. At Workday, my title was investigator. What did it mean? Not 100% sure. But then LinkedIn was looking for an investigator. So my title worked. And oh, then yeah. I figured out what's going, what are they doing there? I remember I interviewed there even before. And I like the role. I wanted to work in LinkedIn a long time. And I ended up in the trust and safety organization in LinkedIn as an investigator. Um, most of my work there was fighting scrapers. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if everybody's familiar. There's a lot of litigation that went on with HiQ, with LinkedIn. They just Pretty sure they just won that case. I was there for that. So I did a lot of that. And alongside that, I did everything else because we were a small team. And it was the team that was like the tip of the spear on LinkedIn investigations going after mm-hmm. all the more substantial attacks that were happening on the platform. It could be sextortion, it could be account takeover, scams, anything. And I got the opportunity to do a bunch of things. I found that I really enjoy, I always did really enjoy fishing. The defense for, or the investigations of fishing, obviously not doing it yourself, yeah. but not the attacks, but I like, what was it about myself. fishing that you loved? <laughs> I did myself one time at, at, I remember at VMware, I used the vendor to fish my team and I remember <laughs> yeah. I, they did get fished. They were like, no, this was not a real thing. You tricked us. Yes, it's a fish. That's what it does. Yeah. I called the guys. It was really funny, <laughs> the responses. But I remember my manager at LinkedIn saying to me, yeah, you're working on scraping, but every time there's a fishing thing, I see you jump in because I know you really <laughs> like, I really like digging behind the fish, behind mm-hmm. the link, behind the email headers, trying to figure out where it's coming from. I, I would always connect whatever TTPs I got from the fish to internal data and LinkedIn. It wasn't always... It was always about digging seven layers deeper and finding Mm. there's the fish. Great. We found it. Who's the account behind it? Many accounts are behind it. How are they doing this? How are they propagating? Where else is this link being propagated on platform, off platform? A lot of open source investigations at LinkedIn that I really enjoyed Mm. uh, related to phishing and not related to phishing. So after almost three years I followed a friend of mine from LinkedIn to Facebook. I went into a very similar role, but Facebook is just a completely different, was a completely different animal. I remember going in, wow, this is into, uh, again. Do you say that because it was bigger or because bigger as far as a company and also the number of users? And the it's, different types of use cases or just like what was so immediately not intimidating, was, but the wow factor. It's, yeah. It's, intimidating. it's huge. Yeah. yeah. First I've of been all, on the campus, yeah. just the campus alone is intimidating. Yes. <laughs> First thing I remember is just the scale. The use is fairly similar, 
but the scale is just overwhelming and the complexity of everything is just overwhelming. And because Facebook is, just does it differently, does it for a longer time and just set up differently from LinkedIn. Right. And it's just, it was a lot. And so over there, I went into a team that was very similar looking into financially motivated actors because that's what we were doing at LinkedIn mostly. After I mm -hmm. left, I think LinkedIn got up into more like info ops stuff that was happening because it was closer to 2020. I wasn't there anymore. But at Facebook, I was in a specific team within the integrity investigations that was dealing with financially motivated actors. And when I say financially motivated actors, it's nine out of 10 times is financially motivated actors going after internal, after users. So we were right. there to users from all types of attacks against users on the platform. Right. You know, what we might consider scams, obviously, right, on the platform as well as on and off the platform, but also all the different ways that they do that, right? There's so many different use cases or maybe I'm yeah. not, maybe I'm there's, not defining it. There's a lot of surfaces at Meta that right. could happen on. My, our job was less, it was going after specific things, but more of identifying large scale stuff if they exist. Okay. So rather than, you know, reports come in and there's this and there's that, you know, there's, there's these individual claims, you're looking for who's behind it. Why are they doing it? How can we identify it? How can we stop it? Exactly. Yes. How can we identify and understand an attacker? Mm, yeah. And break that down. Yeah, often understanding the motivation is the very first thing we all need to know, whether it's payment fraud, financial scams, all the things that come on a user generated content um, or yeah, user generated content platform that's real time. That has a whole other kind of can is, of worms, as they usually say, than like traditional e-commerce. But there's still at the end of the day, you have to, it's still the same thing where, okay, what's the motivation? Why are they doing this? Once you can identify that, yes. then you can dive in more layers. Okay, how and what and all that. And then you, yeah. Exactly. And I always noticed it in social media investigations in general, it's funny because I just had this conversation on LinkedIn with someone and he was talking about motivation and I asked him why. What's mm. why? Why do you want to know about motivation? And he <laughs> answered the same way that I would answer myself. If you know the motivation, where which string to pull on. Yes. So I, I always, in any investigation that I've done, both at LinkedIn and Meta, it's always, why are they doing this? What's there to gain? And every time it's, a, in the end, it's always the same answer. The answer is always money. Mm. It, what gets to me, it's always money, but it, the flavors are always interesting and new of how they're going to make that money. Right. Because recently I've been, as I've been on LinkedIn for a while for now, there's a lot of conversations about scams and how the money comes from the users and you get someone to send you money. There's so many ways to make money, but with illicit activity, sometimes it's not really money coming out of users. It's all kinds of schemes to make money. You just do it in a shady way. Yeah. So. Taking a quick step back and then I want to dive back in here. Just for people who aren't as familiar, I've been so lucky in the last 12 years or so to get to work with so many different types of companies online that I have a fairly good idea, at least on a high level, of the type of threat and issues that different types of companies have. But there's so many people that listen to the podcast and just within our industry that might think the only way I know 
that we define fraud on our end is just somebody uses a stolen credit card. So what would they need such a big trust and safety team for? So just taking a step back, what are some of, I'm not expecting you to name all of them, but what are some of the tasks or the things that a large trust and safety organization within a social media company are responsible for? Keeping in mind that there are so many teams. <laughs> it's a big organization. Yeah. Because as you said, there's so many different surfaces. I think that's a good way of saying it. So what are the other surfaces? Maybe that's better to ask. So it. In general, if you look at it from a social media perspective or in a company that makes products, one of the big things is understanding from an integrity perspective, understanding the products that are coming out, understanding what could go wrong here. I've been on teams that do that. I've been on teams that have other teams do that. But what is universal is that a product will come out. And I'm not referring specifically to a company because that happens in right. all companies. A product right. will come out trust and safety or integrity will hear about it and there will be a collective palm to the face. What? Hold on. Um, <laughs> then uh, starting to enumerate the problems. So that's definitely one. More mature companies usually have that set up in ways. I've seen trust so and thinking safety. about what problems are, you know, yeah. before the product launches internally or so externally, that, yeah. I mean, for your company. Obviously, we know, too, that products launch for other companies and are used to, exactly. you know, to exploit other companies and cross platform and all the other things. But just the things that you can control, it's, there's a team or there's a group of people saying, hey, before we launch this, these are all the different ways that we can think of. They'd yeah. be exploited. Can we change this in this way or that way? And I think that there are a lot of people in different roles, whether it's fraud or trust and safety or cyber. They're like, I wish I was consultant for that. But that sometimes also it's the after effect, right? That's always going to be the case where there was a tweak or there is a new product that gets launched very quickly. And then you have to be more reactive than proactive. But yeah, and there, that's a good thing. There, to know. Yeah. Yeah. There are teams specifically. That's what they do. They react. And they react to bigger problems or they're, they're agile and able to investigate and find these new problems. However, they come up, they could come up through a product, they could come up through legal, they can come up mm -hmm. through compliance. And then you go, oh, okay, there's a thing now. What are we going to do about this thing without enumerating integrity? In both companies that I've worked at, the integrity team is, well, in, in obviously in Meta, it's it bigger. But I was very impressed that there's just anything under the sun within the trust and safety environment that you could think of as a threat has a team working on it, probably. Yeah. Oh, and go ahead. There's also, again, in any other company, there's an operations teams, there's investigations teams, there's threat intel teams. It just, it really depends on the problem at hand and how, what's the attack surface in the company. Mm -hmm. So if the attack surface exists in Meta, definitely if the attack surface exists, there's the chances are there's a team for that. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. 
And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So this is something that I actually didn't even honestly think to mention to you before we recorded. And if, but if people listened to most of the episodes, I think we're like on episode 194 or something crazy like that or five. I don't know. It's something crazy. They've heard this story a couple of times, but it blows my mind specifically to think of so many teams within trust and safety and payment fraud and all that at Facebook and Meta because... When I started my career in payment processing, oh gosh, I helped my daughter. I guess it was 17 years ago. I was a risk analyst for Silicon Valley Bank. And one of the first portfolios I, or one of the first merchants I was handed was, hey, there's a small social media company. And we had classmates.com too. And they were like doing gangbusters. So I was like, oh, well, there are no classmates, which is very much an aged, an aged statement. But they were on the sixth or seventh month of the excessive chargeback monitoring program. They were being used for ad fraud at the time, which could be a deeper conversation offline, but just high level ad fraud. And I remember having a couple of conversations with Mark as well as kind of his number two. And the exact statement I remember telling them, like, you need to have one person who's looking at this. Then there wasn't technology or anything to review it. They're very obviously fraud when you look at it, right? Very obvious, but we have to have it real time. It has to go up. This is the way we're paying. Okay. You're about to get fined. And because you're not big enough, like Visa is going to shut you down and not allow you to process any more payment in the next four or five months, like we were getting close to having to go down to Redwood City in person at the visa headquarters to have a meeting to say, please don't do it. Like it was getting pretty bad. And they're like people from SVB and all that. And I'm advising them. And the one statement I will always hear in my head is it's just me and two employees in my loft apartment. I can't afford to have somebody look at every ad or even half of the ad. And I was just like, yeah, got to. And I famously, or I don't know, famously, but at least in the fraud world, I've shared it enough times that I got off another phone. I don't remember it was the same phone call, but and turned around to my coworkers and I was like, this guy thinks he's going to be the next MySpace and he's younger than me. What does he think? Oh, MySpace. And yeah, I know MySpace, like here I am. And clearly there's a reason I'm not in the stock, right? Or not a VC investor to have just hearing you talk about all. And I know that there are just so many different departments within departments and within teams across all of Meta, not just at Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp and everything like that. And 
it's just crazy for me to think of. And 17 years went from, I can't afford to have somebody do that to now having hundreds of people, if not thousands of people underneath this umbrella. And I think that one of the reasons why I like having people, I enjoy having people who have worked at large companies come on the podcast or speak at conferences or whatever else is to help smaller companies be able to say, hey, do you guys know their leadership, right? When they're told, we can't just hire one more person, we can't just add more technology. Do you have any idea how many people Facebook has or Amazon has or Google has in this role? And we have three, right? Like I have a friend of mine works for, you know, one of the top 10 e-commerce companies in the world. And she asked me how many people are on the team at the company that was right below them. I think one step below. And I said, let me look or let me ask. And so I think the number was like 200. And she said, I have 13 people on my team. No wonder. So she's able to go to her boss and go, and it's not that more people equals more results, but it means that there's so many things that are being missed. There's so many more opportunities if you're not covering them. So anyway, I apologize for the time out there of my own story time, but it just blows my mind to think of how um, how far that's come. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then in my perspective, numbers is not usually... Absolutely. It shouldn't uh, be the... Yeah, it shouldn't be the... You're right. It should not be what you measure it by. I think it's more about saying, hey, they care about this. And that's a reason why they've gotten big. Like one yeah. example I give a lot of people is Netflix invested in a payments team very early. They realized that if they didn't have those subscriptions, yeah, if they didn't have those subscriptions renewing all the time automatically, whether the credit card changes or not, they weren't going to get bigger. That's an example, right? It doesn't mean that it's they invested in people and they invested in infrastructure and technology, but they at least recognize the importance. Whereas there have been other companies that have tried to be the next Netflix that I know have not prioritized payments and they haven't been able to make that leap. So that's more what I mean is like using as an example of the biggest companies in the world care about this. So we should too. Yeah. And you can see as Facebook meta has grown the they have probably the best integrity team in the world yeah and it's very large and you don't need me to tell you that and i can wholeheartedly say that in meta i've worked with some of the smartest most impressive people i have ever met i i there's someone that doesn't work at meta anymore but i just remember being in awe every time Mm. i spoke to her if she's listening (laughs) to this knows who she is it's just, and I can, I remember talking about her monthly after she, this person is amazing. It's just, I've had that feeling multiple times. Mm-hmm. How am I with you in the same room? <laughs> oh, amazing. It is. And I think that's true for trust and safety and all that was underneath it globally too. I think that's one of the reasons why I certainly love meeting so many people is because they are so much more smart. They are so much smarter than I am in so many areas. And I think a big reason for that is passion, right? Like our number one reason for doing the jobs we do isn't for the paycheck. It's always for the impact and the passion. And maybe we have a superhero complex, maybe we don't, but in more the true sense where real superheroes in their alter ego are not so confident and don't have all of that. It's not the ego piece, it's the I want to save the world piece, whether it's healthy or not. And I think that's often to me, that's what when I'm talking to some of the smartest people, I'm like, you're smart because you're passionate and that drives you. Yeah, I will say that that passion oftentimes makes people very grumpy. (laughs) And I remember my team was referred to as the grumpy team. 
uh, I remember that multiple times and mm. I still I worked recently with some of those grumpy people and they're not grumpy. So first of all, you're grumpy because of what? Because you see all kinds of crap constantly. It can make you lose your faith in humanity very quickly. Oh yeah, that ship has sailed. Yeah. Uh, I think it sailed when I was at LinkedIn. But it's also, a company needs to be a company. A company needs to do what they need to do. Not 100% of the time going to do exactly what you as an integrity person want them to do. Sometimes they're going to put make something new, you're going to be like, oh my God, why? But then you'll remember that gives you job security because that company wants you to secure this, but you're going to be grumpy. And, but I found that the grumpiest teams are usually the best teams. They're not, there's a difference between being grumpy and being beaten down. Yes. Uh, And in meta, I have not seen beaten down. I've seen grumpy more of, okay, there's a thing, but I'm empowered to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You suck, but I'm empowered to deal with it, which was one of the best things about working at Meta. I feel like I'm having a Meta commercial today, but like that, <laughs> yes, they laid me off, but I'm still, I think there's so many good things, especially in integrity. And that's one of the greatest things that you just like, no matter what your level, you're empowered to go and fix. And that, that sometimes creates friction that sometimes creates anger because you're like, I am very passionate about this one thing in this one space and the company is, we don't have people to throw into that space because the other space is on fire. And that's very hard. I've dealt with that multiple times Mm -hmm. and sometimes, okay, we're going to deal with the bigger fire now and we'll deal with this other fire later as I get. And that's, it's all fires, right? It's and what you enjoy, the fires that you enjoy putting out the most doesn't always yes. mean that from a business perspective with re- looking at resources and everything else that, you know, what you're going to do. And that can sometimes add to the grumpiness, right? Or the cynicism or being skeptical. I think all of us can relate to that in some ways and feeling like this is a battle we're never going to win. It's never going to and that's, sometimes that can be really like defeating. That's a, or you can look at it as keep being challenging all the time. Exactly. Too, or, it's how you look at it, right? You're unfortunately, you're not going to win the trust and safety battle ever. The one thing that I kept telling people around me was on the other side of us, on the other side of trust and safety and integrity, mm-hmm. that we have jobs. The other side has jobs. They have families that they need to feed. If I'm just looking, I remember just because. Yes. I remember looking into scams and I was asked, how are we going to solve this? And uh, we're not. We're not going to solve this because no matter what obstacle you will put in front of them, they will adapt. Not because necessarily they want to, it's because they have to. Hmm. There's locales around the world that this is the job. Yeah. This is what you do. There's nothing else for you to do. And someone told me one time, that's their product. You have product managers. They have what you would call a product manager. Yeah. And they will, uh, thankfully for them, they're a lot more agile. And <laughs> yeah. you're just like, oh, crap, something changed. Our clients change, their products change. And let's just, let's do something else. And the, also, if you work at LinkedIn or Meta, you're focused on LinkedIn and Meta. If you work as a scammer, you work, you're, worried on, you're working on scams. You don't care. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. And you don't care which. Who cares? And you don't care which team it impacts. I think that's something that you and I have had this conversation just a little bit ago. And I think it's so important to have on the podcast where because there are silos, either 
within different organizations across the company, or even because there's only so many problems and things that even a massive team can focus on. It, I certainly see it as the fraudsters, the threat actors, whatever we're calling them, those other people on the other side, they thrive in getting in between those silos or finding ways to jump from one to the other, whether that's within one company or from another company like a telco. Okay, I'm going to sim swap here and then I'm going to do this here and then I'm going to do that there. It's all within the silos because everyone's so monofocused on what they're doing and their task and their job. And that job is important, but they'll find those silos. So, yeah, the silos go from the micro to the macro, right? Yes, that's a good way to The micro silos down to team members. Team member A worked on a thing. Team member B might be working on the same thing. They just don't know because they're both like in the weeds. Yeah. And then it goes to teams and then it grows to organizations within the larger organization. Yeah. And then it could grow to between companies. So, for example, tech companies can sometimes Mm -hmm. under certain conditions talk to each other. Mm-hmm. But then it also looks bad. So you got to be very careful. Thankfully, I'm not in charge of that. I worked with fantastic lawyers that they were in charge of telling me no. <laughs> things. And then the really good actors, the, that they're really good at their job, they identify the silos. The less sophisticated actors don't care. They just do yeah. their thing. It will flow from you fish something here and then you use it here and then you use money here and then you throw an ad here. They don't care. They don't, not only do they not care, they don't know. They don't right. know how your company works. And they don't do. They just they don't need to know to. if that thing works. Yes. And then the other thing that, that sometimes is very frustrating is that you'll have one of those teams in that silo create one sort of mitigation without considering the rest of the teams in the other silos. Because <laughs> it's just, it's like we're in different countries. Like yeah. You're doing something here. And then the actor changes a little bit and that disrupts everything else, all the tracking. But I'm going down a rabbit hole of when do you allow it and when do you silo an actor and say, nobody touched this actor. But how do you even do that? As the company grows in a small company, you can do that. In a large company, you can't just leave these people alone because I'm going to track them down. And also you can't leave bad actors on the platform. I was actually just going to ask that, like within, yeah, your job of threat intelligence, it's like a probably a balance, right, of being able to understand. You need to see them in the wild enough to know what they're doing and what the motivation is and all of that, but not long enough to do so much damage. Then it's yeah, yeah, cannot allow harm. You cannot allow harm to people, and sometimes it's also the take the give and take between the allowing harm and disallowing false positive. Which is the difference between you allowing harm to you perpetrating harm on your users. Yeah. If you have a business on your platform and you shut this person down because it's a false positive, you're harming this person. Hmm. Whatever it may be, whatever type of business, if, if someone shuts down my wife's Instagram tomorrow, she can't sell her cookies. Right. And that's a well for her. Yes. Um, and then you need to, like, how do I mitigate harm? without perpetrating other harm. And that's very difficult, especially in our space, because Mm. all we want to do is find the actors and all of their stuff, take all their toys away and burn. And maybe (laughs) one of the toys was not one of their toys and it's some good actor that now you destroy their livelihood or just made it really hard for them. I think in general, the industry is going towards more protecting good users 
yeah. and being able to correctly identify harm, which I think is the right way to go. It also obviously helps revenue. Yes. But I, from, I come from, I, I remember coming from LinkedIn. I was like, I have a very big hammer, hammer, smash right. everything. And then I was, people were like, well, you need to calm down. <laughs> we can't do this to people. Because some of the people that you're hammering down might look like a bad actor for some reason. They logged in from lots of different devices or whatever that thing is that makes them look risky. But you're right. It does cause so much harm. There's situations where, and we know that we could go down so many rabbit holes, the different types of specific scams and issues. And I think that's what we'll do in the next episode. But just recently, there was somebody I went to high school with who did not have privacy filters on and all those other things and realized that there were several profiles made in her name with pictures that she had of her children, her and her children. And yeah, just working in social media. Oh, yeah, that happens all that. Right. But then when she went to report the fake ones, then there were questions about, is this your real, is your real one, the fake one? And it was like, you know, this whole mess. And to those good users, they don't understand it. They just expect those things to work and always work for them. And they don't understand that, hey, your behavior, because you might have had an assistant log into your account to do this or that, or you might use the plugin, the scrapers, for example, on LinkedIn. I know about those for sure. As a business owner, those were things that were told to me a few years ago that I should absolutely be using to build my business. And I was like, and I actually asked your former boss about them before I used one. And thankfully he oh, said, you know, because that was my job. To smash them. <laughs> it was after you'd left. Yeah. But he was like, do not do that, please, for Good the love job. of God. Yes. Yeah. Those are right. <laughs> but because they don't know those things, good users don't know, oh, I have someone else log in somewhere, or if I use a scraper and using a bot, it looks bad. I'm going to look like a bad actor and my profile might get shut down and that might be my livelihood. It's just not, and nor does it always make sense to educate, but I think you have a a really good point about the industry as a whole, instead of thinking of it as, let's just look at the bad and get the bad out. We're trying to focus on, let's make the good as possible. Let's validate the good. Let's know that they're good. Let's give them a good, safe environment and be more surgical about identifying the threat actors. And I think that with technology advancements, we're able to do that more than we could years ago. But it is a shift that can have some bumps along the way. Yeah, and it happens even within the civic arena, within election integrity and things like that, that you'll have good actors that have to hide themselves and they have to move around and they mm-hmm. look bad actors. Or you'll have benign actors that's just posting news sites that are crap. But yes. this person oh. doesn't necessarily deserve to get their entire profile get nuked because they shared something that someone with malicious shared it or things like that happened in the past. Yeah, it's that's one aspect of it, of like, Mm. how do we not have, how do we preserve the integrity of the web, of the platform, while at the same time preserve the integrity of people that are here that are not doing anything wrong? So why would you say that threat intelligence and doing those investigations and looking at those things is important? So I guess we've been taking another step back. We're talking about how Fortunately and or unfortunately, the trust and safety battle will never truly be won. And so there could be people who would say, and I don't think anyone that listens to this podcast, because I hope they know the answer, but leadership, if you were to say it to leadership, they'd say, okay, then why even fight it? 
I think we have very strong, I almost have a strong physical reaction just even saying that, right? What do you mean why you invite it? But what, from your perspective, what is the answer to that? What's the alternative? So the why even fight it, I think we're seeing that right now. With mm. Yeah. Though I hear they're hiring, so I'm happy for that. But Are they hiring on the trust and safety side? Yes. And I, I wish them well, but I think- I almost always have a, sorry to talk about, I almost always have a don't mention, don't name other companies role. However, when the company is in the news for that thing, we can name them all day long. And in this case, Elon Musk has made the decision, and I have talked about it on past episodes, that trust and safety doesn't matter. And I think that's a really good example or integrity departments don't matter. And well, yeah. the fact that he's that they're hiring trust and safety people is telling me that they are starting to think that trust and safety might be important. But in it's if you don't have trust and safety, it's not going to be long until you're not going to have a company. Kind of what you were saying yes. is, going to get sued into the ground. And as especially now when all the regulations are out and all the privacy protections are out, the government, men, multiple governments are telling you this is what you need to have. I'm pretty sure Parler is gone. Ah, yeah, good Don't point. know how social survives still, but it, it's been a pretty interesting experiment with Twitter. But yeah, if you don't have trust and safety. So the question is a zero or a one. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can't have because from a business perspective, you're just not going to have a business. Forget user trust. User trust, let's say you can ride on that momentum for a little bit, right. but you're going to get smashed fiscal, financially. You're just going to get smashed. Yeah, all it, the advertisers that pulled out when uh, um, you know, Yoel couldn't guarantee on the, I think now infamous conference call with all the, inv- the oh, yeah, that advertisers, like very towards the beginning, I think Yoel was put on the phone put on the spot and asked, hey, what are you going to have as far as content moderation? What are the, are you going to have guidelines or anything? Are you going to have any rules? And he wasn't able to say yes. And he wasn't able to say, yeah, we're going to keep having the same standards and the same things. And I guess what I would tell people who, and I know a lot of people that are very hard on social media companies and I get all those arguments for what's already, what's on the platform. But if you are disturbed by things that are on the platform, you would be shocked what doesn't, what gets kept off of it by integrity and trust and safety teams. And I think people are realizing that now as well in this experiment, as you call it. I think it's a good word for it. Yeah. The the first thing that comes to my mind always is the child safety angle. Mm -hmm. Child safety perpetrators will share imagery anywhere possible. You're not going to stop that, forget stopping them, getting that off your platform. So that's just going to happen. That's the one, that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. After that, there's the the menagerie of horrible things people can do. And that goes down all to the financial crimes, which are probably after child safety, probably the most regulated is probably financial crimes. But yeah, so the zero and one question is, it's kind of moot. You have to have something. But then I keep hearing the content moderation, but definitely content moderation is important. But it's critical. But as companies grow and as you get more users and more abuse, you can choose one of two paths. You can choose the operations path of just have contractors or have people just take down bad content, maybe take down bad accounts if they're prolific and just keep doing that forever and measure them on that. And they will be very successful as there's more fraud or more abuse. But we'll focus on fraud. 
But is that going to make your platform safer? Probably not. This is where threat intel come in, comes into play yes. and, and investigations teams. So while okay, threat investigation, threat intel and investigations, that's when you start understanding the tactic, techniques and procedures of mm. the attackers. This is when you want to scale, when you want to say, hey, I don't want to close this same door every day. I remember when I started, I was like, I, I don't want to close the door that the attackers are coming from. Because, well, on an operations perspective, you're not even closing the door. You're just stopping people after they went through like, the open. Yeah, yeah. You're playing whack-a-mole, right? Like after they walk in the door, after they've tried to do something, then you're telling them no. Then they're just going to keep creating. Either, yeah. keep Either they're trying to. The analogy. Take, right. Yes. Yep. And that, so I don't want to do that. And that's not sustainable uh, for scale. It's not sustainable. To me, it's also very frustrating and not interesting. Uh, that's where we had the conversation about the investigative mentalities, whatever yes. you want to call it. As you want to start scaling things out, you need to start understanding how these attackers are doing what they're doing. Why are they doing what they're doing? And kind of start dissecting that. Oh, they're opening a fake account. Okay, it's coming from this country. All right. And let me chain this with another indicator and another indicator. And that is the wonderful way in which operations teams and threat mm. intel teams work together. So there's, if we put aside engineering for a second, which is a critical piece of this, if you didn't have engineering support for trust and safety, which happens a lot, you can create those, T I'm, distill those TTPs mm -hmm. and then take to the ops teams here, look for those four things together all the time. Mm. That's extremely ex effective. Extremely. Yes. Effective. That deters users because they're like, okay, I walk in through that door and I hit a wall again and again. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to go try something else. Not to be, I don't want anybody to think that an attacker is going to be, is going to say, oh, I don't like this anymore. I'm going to go have another job. No, they're going <laughs> to just move three feet to the left can do the same thing with engineering, with identifying these TTPs, creating rules around these TTPs, creating machine learning, and then have it adjust. So as the actors adjust slightly, machine learning can adjust with them as long as there's a feedback loop. Yes. Uh, and rules can rules less machine learning more can adjust yeah. and understand. OK, so this at scale is getting smashed in much, much higher scale than ops. And then you save ops time to do other things. Yes, and um, work on the new things that are coming in. Yes, and then you work on the new things, you generalize the new things, you put it in engineering, and you do it all over again. The threat intel job is to do a couple of things. One is to just stay ahead of the trends. Mm. We don't want to be finding from compliance or from legal that there's a thing happening that's a fire now. Because that's usually not what Threat Intel wants to do. Threat Intel right. doesn't want to fight fires that are happening right now before ops. Could be there's people that really like that. Depends on the fire. Really depends right. on the, you know, the actor behind the immediate fire. But Threat Intel wants to be ahead of the, somewhat ahead of the fiery attacks. We want to find the attacks that are smaller, but are more complex. And then share those CTPs and engage with stakeholders and let's continuously have that feedback loop. I've seen that work wonderfully. I've yes. seen that work not so wonderfully when it's, when you go into, when you have constraints, when you have budget just, or engineering like, constraints or yeah, yep, or vendor yep. constraints, right? Cannot allocate any engineering yes. to this. I am sorry. But what I've noticed, that we talked about it earlier, what I noticed is that sometimes is very hard for the threat intel 
investigators. Mm-hmm. Because Intel investigators wants to go find the person, the organization. Mm-hmm. It really depends on the scale of the abuse. I would say probably if you're going after scams from West Africa, for you to go to find the bad guy, eh, <laughs> is it worth it? Probably right. not. And then what do you do? You find him, yeah. then what? Yeah, then maybe you can do something about it. But is it going to make any effect on anything? That's very hard for threat intel investigators. But you focus on how do we protect the users at scale? How yeah. do we mitigate the threat? How do we bring this space to a, a place where it's okay? This is actually all the low-hanging fruit is getting handled nicely. We can go, now we can choose, do we go a little higher or do we go clean up another area? But like I we talked about, it, that's a, this whole structure is a luxury. Luxury for the big companies. Smaller yes. companies, like you said, I have 13 people. It's going to be very yeah. hard to do with 13 people. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, right? And that's one of the things that I hope comes from some of these conversations is at least being able to go to leadership and saying, hey, like we have a user trust issue or we have scams on our platform are happening and they they don't have to be a social media company, right? There's a lot of other types of companies that have issues that I know several of them are trying to move toward. How do we know what's coming before it's coming? How do we know what's going to happen before it's happening? And I've been grateful to be able to facilitate a lot of those conversations with about 70 or 80 big retailers on a biweekly basis. And it's helped inform a lot. And some of them have a threat intel person who will go dark web or things like that and look at what are they saying about our company? I don't, it really depends on who that person is, if they're able to be effective and helpful. But I do find that to your point, being proactive and knowing what can happen is the first step, right? Because a lot of times I, I have I've become the default person in the fraud side of when somebody sees something they don't understand and they're like, how or why is this happening? They come to me and go, have you ever seen this before? What's going on? And most of the time I'm like, oh, yep. Another bigger company saw this last one. This is what they're doing. Like, this is how they're doing it. Or, But like other times it's like, these are weird signals and I don't even understand why anyone would do that. There's been issues with some companies having, and I really want to do an episode on it soon. They're just accounts signing up purely for the SMS text message to go to premium phone numbers for OTPs, right? So they just, they're like, oh, this company verifies phone numbers and texts them or calls them. And then I make money on the back end of this phone number receiving a text, those type of things, right? But like, for Companies are like, I don't understand why they're opening an account on us because there's no, they're not doing anything. They're just opening an account. They're getting the one-time password. They're verifying and then they're going away. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Just knowing where that could be, to your point, is so important because it helps guide priorities and helps inform the business of what the next thing is going to be. Yeah, the hard thing is that if it doesn't affect your company at this point, (laughs) Is it a priority right now to look into? We're looking into the thing that's important to us right now. But I I get that. I think the other thing with trust, with threat intel is knowing to ask the right questions, which is hard. But a lot of times the right question is like, why are they doing this? Yes. Yes. To your point. Yeah. The motivation part, right? Like just, yeah. This is weird. So every time my dog's falling off the bed slowly. Every time. Do you need I to get in? Okay, I was going to say, we need to stop for a second. It's really fun. 
was trying to get off. I bet. Yeah. He got up. So, um, where was I about asking the right, the right, right question? Asking the right questions. Like the why, uh, right? Like, why are they doing it? What's the. Yeah. I will hear of a scheme. Someone will tell me someone's doing this. And I'll be like, wow, this is really interesting. Why do you think they're doing that? Let's try to think what are the op- possibilities. I don't know all the possibilities. I don't work in every single thing, especially not in the fintech space that I can tell you why. But as I started looking, for example, you will see these advanced payment scams that are annoying. They're mostly annoying. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, how is that happening? That's really cool. Usually I find I'll find myself really appreciating the bad actors. I That's think a, a lot I of us do, too. do that. Yeah. And then we're like, son of a now, how do we catch it? At first, we're like, wow, that's really like very creative. And then we're like, God, no, how do we do? Now yeah. comes our part. <laughs> how do we identify yes. it? And then I think that the, there's a huge parallel between what you were talking about with threat intel and how you're looking at how do we identify it higher up, right? So that ops isn't having to just shut everyone down and we can close that gap, so to speak. And that's mm-hmm. almost exactly the the steps and the pattern that we go through on the payment fraud side. It's a different, there are different rails, there's different reasons, there's different actions, but it's really the same step, right? Like we need to dive in and understand the details at the account level or at the transaction level. And then we need to go up or dive in more, zoom in and look at the details and then zoom back out and say, okay, what are those identifiers? What are those commonalities that we can plug into a model? At this point, I think we're going the method of models because rules are a little more reactive. However, not every machine learning model is perfect either by any means. They're not all the same, but having that feedback is so important. That's why I, that's actually why I like chargebacks, but that's like a whole other long story and a very long rabbit hole that we will not go down. But it's because it provides a feedback and you get to understand yeah. the why. So that is, you're not always going to understand the why. And sometimes you just need to make it stop. Um, That's true. But, but I am always fascinated because I'm so deep in this. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated talking to people outside the industry and they sometimes can't fathom what's happening. And in other times, and that's within the industry too, there's a very myopic view of this is romance scams. And this is, we need romance scams. And that happens with all types of abuse. Because again, this is a business. They're not doing one thing. They're doing all the things. Yes. Um, And a lot of times we get stuck on dealing with the one thing because it has a sexy name. We deal with it. And then that that team or that person understands that one thing and only that one thing. Yes. Or this person is the romance scam expert. That's but within not a the romance thing. scam is phishing and within that there's AP, there's advanced payment scams. And then in, within that there's so, social engineering and within that there's so many different things. And so it's right. almost like one of those Russian dolls, right? That you just keep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Someone once not too long ago told me about how they saw crypto scam and they were putting money into an account, but then they tracked that account and that account was opened by someone in the U.S. And they're like, what is happening? That person was getting romance scam to open an account. So you have a romance scammer on one end and you have the crypto scammer, probably the same person on right. the other hand. And they're handling two different people in order to facilitate the scam. Um, yep. There are a lot. So the thing is, when we look at. They're so much more I'm agile, just, right? They don't have yeah. budgets. They don't have they engineering don't. constraints. They don't have that. They also 
I used to have this debate with my former podcast partner on a different podcast. Like he was a former cyber criminal and he would be like, you know, your terms, you guys get hung up on terms and then you don't. And I'm like, we need to have something that we call it. But I also agree that we also need to have an open mind and not just put walls around that term. We need to understand that they can all have way different adaptations. I often compare fraud to zombies where they adapt to the tools that you have and they just keep regenerating and changing. And so it's the same thing, right? We need to know that, okay, we can call it a romance scam, but we also need to be very aware that there are other types, right? Maybe the method that they recruited that mule was romance, but now it's so many other different types. That's the difference between going after an account and going after a behavior. Wow, Um, that's a really good point. We don't personally, as a threat intel investigator, I don't want to go after an account. An account is disposable. Yes, so true. I can go and buy as many accounts as I want. They're disposable. They are cheap. So if you go after the account level or the content level, you're probably going to have a really hard time. It's going to take you a lot of time and it's going to cost you more than them. Oh, yeah, because it's, it's, it's nothing. But if you start identifying the behavior, that's when you can make it cheaper for you and more expensive for them. Mm-hmm. The Which thing- is always the goal, whether they are stealing directly from your company, whether they are stealing from your users, whether they are using your users or using your platform for abuse and harm. That is always our goal is to make it easier for us or cheaper for us to identify them and detect them, but more expensive, not just in money, but in time on their end. Yes. And it's always the, I just wanted to make it more difficult enough so they leave us alone. They leave this platform or that platform alone, go go somewhere else. At that point, it's hard to say, oh, I don't care where they go. But as long I can be cleared to look at something else that is as scary. But when I, in, in my time working on scams, I really feel that the general perception of scammers is that it's less, less sophisticated. We look down at scammers mm. or scam victims. We always look down at scam victims. How, do, how okay. did that happen? But we look, we don't feel scammers are that sophisticated. Hmm. And they are very sophisticated. The thing is that they're sophisticated and there's so many of them that they're hiding behind the noise. Yes. The, the, mm. in my, I, I, I can't put something specific behind it, but finding a king linchpin scammer is next to impossible. It's going right. to be extremely time consuming while finding other people that were doing other things that you could think of as more harmful is a little easier. Attribution on a smaller operation is easier. Attribution on, on, on a type of abuse that is prevalent in a location is going to be next to impossible. Especially mm. if that location is like full of internet cafes and you're like, just go have fun with that. Yeah, you're, I cannot, yeah, not try to yeah isolate that to internet cafes because there's a lot of good people that use them too. But right, I, yeah. Yeah, that's what people This forget. is a really good place. It's hard to do on my end, but it's a really good place to end for this first episode. It's crazy how it happens. I told you, I was like, I think this might be two episodes and you're, I think you said it's hard to imagine I can have so much to say. And I said, I think you'll be surprised. But really on the next episode, I want to dive into some of those specifics. Really, there were two that I wanted to dive into a little more. The misinformation piece, 
I think you get really passionate about that. I love the fact that there are people that are passionate about that. And there's all different, we'll be specific about what those are because there's all different types of disinformation and misinformation, et cetera. But there's a specific type that you really got to dig into in over the last seven or eight years that was really interesting. And it's a very good example of this where it's not just one thing, right? It's not just fishing. It's all these other things. And then I also want to drill into a little bit the scam piece and just there's so many scams, but I know that especially a lot of people listening are dealing on a regular basis with their company's gift card being the target, right? Whether somebody's being contacted online, they're being called, et cetera. It's trying to get vulnerable people to buy a lot of anonymous payments, basically, which are gift cards and reading them the numbers on the back, right? So that's those type of things, pig bird chicken, et cetera. You have so much good experience and knowledge from a different perspective than I've talked to you on that, that I am really looking forward to diving into that on the next episode. Asaf, I just, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. I think you have confirmed my theory or my knowledge that there are so many overlaps in the way that we think about things in trust and safety and integrity and payment fraud. And they all are connected. And I think that information sharing and cross-pollination of experiences and methodologies and philosophies, even if someone has, could be the, works for a company that could be the furthest from meta, probably picked something up and was like, oh, that makes sense. We could apply that to something else. And that's what I love about this. So thank you again so much. And I will uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.